All right, we back. You already know what it is. We back with another dope episode of No Pump Face. We here. And we got a special guest on today's recording. We got Scoop Jackson on the show. What's going on, man? Nothing, man. What's going on with you? Thanks for having me. No I, doubt, I, no I doubt. I've been down on you. I, I like it. I like it. <laughs> the the no slam legend. <laughs> the OG. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. So, so usually I feel like, you know, people may save a question like this, you know, for the middle or the end of a conversation. But, you know, here on No Pump Face, we like to go the opposite direction, of course. So first things first, I got I to gotta ask this. If you, if you could, right? If you had to give us, I'll say two, your top two either slam moments or stories with regards to slam, what, what would they be? Starting from the top. Wow. Yeah. Um, right? it, wow. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll rip. You know, we, you know, I know that's the, like I said. Usually, there's let's softballs. Make it, let's, you know, make let's it little, get three. You know, make you, it started, three. you started, you started with some heat. Um, right, I, I, I said two because it was the first question. But if you want to make it three, I mean, by all means. No, yeah, I'm, it, I'm just it. trying to guess, man. You know, like you said, OG. I'm trying to think of one. You, you know, <laughs> one thing, one, y'all, y'all like realize when you get to OG status, the first thing that goes is your recall. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. you know, yeah. Um, but off the top, man, I think um, one was the draft class, the um, yeah, the draft class shoot. Um, you know, the famous one, the original spread, the '96 draft class. Whatever, what class was that? '96. '96 draft class shoot. But the shoot itself was special. That was a special moment. But the one I think that tops it is that's where we started. Double XL magazine. We started it at a bar at the hotel that we were not supposed to be at, staying under assumed names. So nobody, we were on some gorilla, you know, early day slam gorilla, getting the cover shoot, getting stuff done, you know, with the help of people inside the NBA. <laughs> uh, but you know, the night before that shot, before before we shot that cover, Tony Trevino, Don Morris, myself. We were sitting at the uh, bar at the hotel trying to actually lay out how we were going to make that shoot happen because they told us we only had a certain amount of time to make this happen so that we needed to be exact. We need to tell the, which players we wanted. We need to have the players lined up the way we wanted. They, none of that messing around. Like, y'all got like five minutes to make this happen. So we were sitting at the bar on a paper napkin, literally. And Don was drawing out and Tony was sketching out how they wanted it to fold out so we knew exactly what we were doing. But in the process of doing that, Don wasn't, you know, a real sports basketball fan. That, that wasn't his thing. You know, he was a culture, music, you know, just skateboard. You know, Don was, Don was, sports wasn't his thing. He's like, he's going crazy. Like just, he needed to do something else. And we're like, look, man, let's, you know, and men's magazines were kind of hot back then. You know, they had Maxim had just started and uh, everything from Maxim, the arena in London was going on. And uh, JFK Jr. started George Magazine. So all these men themed magazines were going on. And we're like, all right, we, we need to do, you know, let's let's do something culturally relevant to men. And Don was like, but it got to be hip hop based. And I'm like, yeah, I, it's got to be hip hop based, you know. So it's not like we were trying to go at Vibe or go at the Source or, you know, go at Blaze, none of that. We were just trying to find a men's magazine. And we conceptualized XXL at that bar in the middle of this shoot for the 96 draft class. And 
it's so funny to me, and that's why it stands out, because what XXL has become over this period of time, you know, uh, and I remember sitting at that bar, we wrestling over names, like what we go call names. And this probably why it sticks out in my head, because I wanted to call it Leroy, because there's no white people named Leroy. I'm like, Leroy is the beautifulest black name. Like, you know what you're dealing with when you got a Leroy, right? <laughs> so... I said, they got white, white boys got George, we're gonna have Leroy. We're gonna, we're gonna do it that way. That was my thing, right? Tony wanted to call it Cajones, which I, which is like dope. I was like, that's the perfect name. That, that's a great name, because you know, it's works. I said, but Tony, you know, black folks are gonna read that and say Cole Jones. It ain't gonna work, man. <laughs> we, it's not gonna work. <laughs> and we're like the great, the greatest name to name a magazine, a men's magazine was taken, and that was players. So we couldn't use that, right? So I remember sitting there thinking, we were wrestling with wrestling names, and we didn't come up with XXL to like a couple of weeks later. I remember Don and Tony actually pitched the concept to the president of the company at the time, was Stanley Harris. And he basically said, you all have made me so much money with Slam. Whatever idea y'all come up with, I'll, I'm good. I'll bankroll. So there was a lot of trust there. And Don literally kept messing around. You know, I was messing. We were, we were kind of just brainstorming over the weeks with names and stuff like that. And, you know, my thing is looking at the black magazine culture at the time. I just didn't want the magazine to start with the letter E. You know, there's Essence and Ebony. And I'm like, you know, we got to get beyond that. You know, so I wanted it to speak to a different audience. And I, I forgot how he came up with it. I think he was at shopping there, saw a hang tag or something like that. And Don saw the letters XXL, standing for extra large. On, I, I think it was an item. Um, and he, you know, him being a graphic design genius, he blocked out those letters just everything else around it and looked at that and just thought of how it would look on, you know, a, a cover of a magazine. And he said, every other, you know, magazine you see out there, the name, you know, is stretched across the top of the mag, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, there's no space. It's just the name. And that's really the sale. And all of a sudden, even vibe with this big four letters will still stretch out. He said, just corner this, you know what I'm saying? Just look at it as a corner. You got so much space to deal with from an art perspective and all this. He just looked at it as that's what's going to make this magazine stand out. That's what's going to make this magazine unique. And, you know, looking at the name, looking at putting it in a red block, you know, that was kind of what Ebony did sometimes. He said, just look at the red. He just designed it in a way that it was more of the design aspect of the name double XL as, or XXL, as opposed to just what it stood for extra, extra large. And his whole concept, like we got to deal with this magazine. It's like dealing with hip hop on a higher level. You know, not the extra largeness, but this is hip hop on a different level. And we're like, that's G, you know, so that's what I, that, that's the one I remember the most because of what came out of it. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? That, that was, that was the one I think that was, that was the most special. And we were able to really dive into things. Uh, so I think that's the number one. Um, number two, um, wow. Um, I think probably uh, Tony's, Tony's risk, I got it, it's easy. Tony's, number two would be Tony's risk of putting Ray for Austin on the cover. Because at the time, you know, um, this is before, this is like before the skip tape came out. You know what I'm saying? This is like five years before that. But we knew who he was by watching him, you know, as a teenager. So we, we were 
familiar with Skip for real. So when he finally signed on to Fresno State, Tony had the concept of like, yo, boom. And I remember Tony and Dennis going back and forth about this, but Tony, like, you know, just his genius uh, was not who Ray for Austin was. Cause he sold that as speaking to what our magazine was about. We're about the culture of basketball and we know who this kid is. And this isn't, you know, he, he speaks to everything that we, we built this magazine about, but here's just genius. And like, it isn't the cover. It isn't him. It isn't the shot. It's not even the tagline. It's under the tagline. It's the name you never heard of. Cause the best point guard in the world, he's like, that's what's going to sell the magazine. You put a cat on there that nobody outside of New York knows about and give him the title of the best point guard in the world. That's going to grab people. He said, but it's right under there that nobody's heard of. That's what's going to get him. It's going to grab him right there with the headline. They're going to be like, what? And then they'd be like, wait, you never heard of? That's what's going to make him pick up the magazine. And I'm sitting there watching like, damn, you know, you know, you, you know, kind of guys that are like built and meant to do things, you know, being around Tony all the time, like he's a genius. So I, I get what he's doing. But to see him come up with that concept and execute that concept and like, like, bam, that's it. That's the second one. And the third one was the entire, um, the entire throwback issue, the Allen Iverson one. Uh, because the centerpiece to that entire issue was built around the Julius Irving story, the Dr. J story we tell. And we've been chasing Dr. J for years. Like that was our like, that was our holy grail. That was it. And he finally decided to sit down with us. And, you know, this was the one that Dennis was like, you know, because they assigned me to the story and there's like, Scoop, don't fuck this up. Tony's like, Scoop, don't fuck this up. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, all right, because this, in our minds, this was our biggest get. You know, we had interviewed Michael Jordan, but he didn't, he wasn't the same with us. Doc was it for us, man. And, you know, to get Doc to sit down and speak to us and explain why it took so long to get there and all this and the other. And, you know, um, to get that interview and then for Tony, again, with his genius. And Dennis, too, I give Dennis credit for this, too, because, you know, the thing was to put Dr. J on the cover of the issue and have that be the throwback issue. You know, Dr. J, you know, it's like, but we didn't know if we we're going to use an old Dr. J. I think Tony was leaning towards a, and Don was leaning towards an old Dr. J photo. I'm not sure. But we got Doc, and that was going to be a centerpiece. But I think Dennis, I may be wrong. But I think Dennis was the one that's like, no, we need something new on here. We need something, you know, Dr. J may not pop from a newsstand sale because of, you know, who he is, even though this is like the, the throwback issue or whatever. And for them to come up with the idea like, hey, Allen Iverson is perfect. You know, because of what he represents, who he represents, his relationship with us, every time he's on the cover, it pops, it sells. And I think at the time he'd been on two covers, maybe. You know, so getting him and his ties to Philadelphia, because Julius was a 76 as well. So, you know, tying all that together, it just made sense to build, you know, this magazine around that Dr. J thing. And just out, it may have been Russ. I don't know whose idea it was to pitch Allen about leaving his braids out for the Afro. Um, but he was so down with us that he's like, hey, you know, like, I don't do this for anybody, but for y'all, I'll do this. You know, as long as I can rock my ice, like, dude, do your thing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that, the brilliance of that cover, to build around that, for Tony to label it like the, you know, the throwback issue, to get Allen in a throwback, you know, 
Mitchell and Ness jersey, which is not, people didn't know Mitchell and Ness existed back then. It was just a small retro company in Philadelphia. That magazine blew Mitchell and Ness up, the whole concept. And to be honest with you, that really wasn't, I think they made an Allen Iverson jersey, but it's actually a Hal Greer jersey from back in the day. You know, that they mocked for Iverson and he used. And then the throw with the red, white, and blue basketball, that is an homage to Dr. J. Because, you know, if you think about it, Philadelphia was, they never had a team in the ABA. So they had an ABA ball with that retro thing, you know, with, with the retro jersey on Philadelphia. All of that is for Julius Irving. You know what I'm saying? People don't even get, they think it's an Allen Iverson. That whole concept was Julius Irving. Because that's supposed to be Julius Irving on the cover of the magazine. So for them to flip it and basically turn Allen Iverson into a new school Dr. J with the Afro, the ABA ball, the old Philly jersey. And then... The little small detail in that is the wife beater under the jersey. If you look at that, that's not a mistake. Like, in shooting that, they're like, no, leave that showing. Because that's, like, so gangster that nobody would even realize. But everybody in the hood knew, oh, that's some real shit. You know, you know what I'm saying? That's, that's like not caring that somebody's shoelaces are out of place on a photo. You know, it's like that's that real, 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 real thing. And that's what made that whole thing so special. So those are my top three. That's a heavy three. That that that, that I, I like all all three of those. Let me ask two, right? So the the ending of that, we talk about Allen Iverson, right? Do you think the game of basketball will ever see another player with the type of impact that AI has had on the culture? Because because AI was pre, yeah. right, like Twitter, yeah, right, pre yeah. TikTok, yeah. but even even still. With, with the level of fame that he had. And now, right, think about in the world that we're in now with 2022, do you think we'll ever again see a player like Allen Iverson have that type of impact on the culture? If you had asked me this 10, maybe 20 years ago, my answer would be no. You know, but I've learned over the course of my time and that period of time I just mentioned that, you know, history, what is it? History doesn't repeat itself. It just gets remixed. You know, um, so I believe we will. I've learned, like, I never thought that we'd see from a basketball standpoint. I thought George Gervin was the one player that we would never see again. Nobody that small, that skinny, that could score like that. You know, that frame, that had the ability to score. We would never, ever see that again. I thought we'd have a chance to see another Michael Jordan. We'd have a chance to see another Larry Bird. I'm pretty sure we're going to see another Magic Johnson, you know. And those players that were unique, you know, even when Nate Archibald was able to somebody that small having that type of impact. and you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll probably see somebody at some point, and it may be Trey Young, you know, uh, that, that leads the league in scoring and assists. Like, I'm, as a kid, I'm like, that's never going to happen again, you know. Whoever thought we'd see somebody averaging a triple-double like Oscar Robinson, and then Russell comes on. You know, so I've seen things come along, but the one thing I knew for sure we'd never see because of how NBA bodies have gotten so much bigger and stronger now. Unlike George Gervin is, is the anomaly. You know what I'm saying? He's the unicorn. We'll never see that again. And then here comes KD. It's like, damn. You know, that's, so I've learned to never say that because it just takes a matter of time. Sometimes it's 20 years. Sometimes it's 30 years. Sometimes it's a couple of generations before we see something like that again. So to answer your question about Allen Iverson, I think we're going to see it. But it will be remixed. You know what I'm saying? It will be something different. It will be taking into consideration all of the things that are in play right now or will be in play down the line. You know, with 
you know, nothing really being new or nothing taking anybody by surprise because of social media and people not coming out of anywhere, you know, will have that impact. You know, um, I think we're seeing a slight version of it, maybe in John Morant. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You know, a, a little bit, but I, I don't know if John's going to be able to transcend the way Allen has. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's going to be interesting if he can transcend the sport the way Allen did because Allen represented so much more than just basketball. And what he did was still fascinate people for over a period of, what, 12 years maybe? Something like that. You know, and that's kind of where Steph Curry comes into play. You know, it's not what Steph Curry did eight years ago, you know, or six years ago. That was fascinating. It's kind of what he's doing now. The fact that he's been able to still do it over this period of time. And that's what fascinates us. And that's what fascinates us. I was like, ah, oh, you know, this ain't going to last. There's nobody, you know, there's no way this small cat playing the way he plays is going to be able to sustain this over the course of a legit career. So let's, let's enjoy this while we can because it's not going to last long. But then it's like, damn, seven years, damn, nine years, damn, 11 years. You know what I'm saying? It's like, when is this going to, that's when you start appreciating it. And when we watch Steph get to that point now, it's like, we're still fascinated. It's going to be interest, interesting to see if John Moran's going to be able to sustain this level for 10 more years. You know what I'm saying? That's what's going to be interesting. And if his style, if his commitment, if his sense of freedom and that, that, that's, to me, the thing that stands out about Iverson in answering your question. It's not just what he represented culturally. It's what he represented as us as Black individuals when it comes to sports. You know, he showed us what freedom looks like. You know, and to me, there's only been a few Black athletes been able to do that. Ali was one. You know, to show you what, this is what freedom looks like for us in the space of sports. Well, I'm going to be me. Like, my principles, my belief, my Blackness, this is me. And this country and this society and this business that I'm in is not strong enough to change my core. It's not strong enough to make me compromise anything. That's what we saw in Iverson. That's what we saw in Muhammad Ali. You know, I don't know if we're going to see that in John Morant. We may see, you know, we may see it. But to see that transcending athlete in basketball, you know, we may see it, but it's going to take more than just that because to me and Allen Iverson, it's going to have to be that individual that embodies what our freedom at that time looks like on the court. And I don't know if, you know, I don't know, I don't know, Jazz, I don't know when we're going to see that athlete, but I do believe at some point in time we're going to see that again. Do you think it's going to be harder with the, the way the generation plays, like for us, like social media and stuff compared to back in the day? Um, I think it's going to be hard. That's a good point. I think there's twofold. I think, yes, it can be harder because, like I said, you can't take anybody by surprise and it's going to, it's, it's everything everybody's doing is right up there in front. So it's going to be harder to have that type of generational impact when we already know who you are. You're telling us who you are throughout the course of this. So your journey is already exposed by the time you get to a certain stage. So that's going to make it harder. But it's going to allow you to have more people following what you're doing and your journey because it's going to be easier because they have the access to you. You're going to be able to group more people together and, and, and have a gathering, have a following and be able to get your voice out there much louder. And you're going to be able to do it on your own accord as opposed to waiting for the media to sell your story 
to the rest of the world. You're going to have some control of that by yourself through the advent of whatever social media outlets will be around, you know, that around now will be around the next five to 10 years. So I think, you know, there's that gift and that curse is going to work with and against what you just asked. Um, what I do think, though, is going to make it more difficult. If we look at the path we're on right now, and I don't, I don't see a change coming anytime soon. I think we're at the beginning of the next phase of how we're going to function as a whole country with the divisiveness and people really like embodying how they feel and being emboldened to, you know, ex express how they feel, especially when it comes to matter of race and power. I think that's going to make it harder because the fight on the other side of what your freedom looks like is going to get tested in ways that probably weren't around when Iverson came up. That test from the other side of the anti-Allen Iverson wasn't as strong as it's about to be. So, you know, when they start, you know, when, when you see an athlete that is, you know, a, a black athlete or an athlete of color that is expressing what the sense of minority freedom looks like, the anti-woke side is going to be like, nah, we're not going to lay quiet anymore. You know what I'm saying? This, this is going to be up front. So, and we're seeing it very stark right now. So that athlete who is going to be that voice or, or be that embodiment of freedom, that's what's going to be hard for them, I think, in the future. Because I don't think at any point we're going to see the downside of the, the, the anti-quote-unquote freedom movement start regressing. You know, especially when you start seeing the Supreme Court start making, like, judgments that are affecting lives, you know, on another sense of freedom. You know, when it gets to that level, that shows you that this is not going anywhere anytime soon. So for every next Allen Iverson that we see coming along, there's going to be a stronger push against that. So that's what I think is going to make it harder more than anything else. Do you think there's been a shift in the way players tend to use their voice, whether it be through social media or overall off the court? Um, things that they might uh, partake in? Yes, um, I think so. But I think that's because of the climate win. I mean, the climate has changed. And if you look at the way sports moves, you know, with the way society moves, they, they usually go hand in hand. Um, the interesting thing is that I think sports and sports figures, they really don't often start those movements, but they're always seem, they always seem to be at the forefront. So when there is a shift in mentality in society, you usually see sports figures when it comes to us be at the front of that movement happening. So, yes, I see a shift because society has started to shift, you know. And when you saw the, you know, awakening of America a couple of years ago at the hands of the killings of a George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, you know, or Ahmaud Arbery, you see these things. You see society start to shift with that. A lot of times at the forefront, you know, of, of just that was the WNBA, was the NBA, was the LeBron James, was the Derrick Rose, was the Carmelo Anthony's, you know, you know, were, were the Megan Rapinos, you know, we could go down the line on all of the athletes that were at the forefront of this vocal movement, you know, of this physical movement to get to, and the Colin Kaepernick's, to, to, to make the country aware of what society is actually saying. Like I said, the athletes didn't start it, but they're at the forefront of it. So I think we've seen that change right now because it coincides with what happened 
in the 60s, you know, and the movement going on. We mentioned Muhammad Ali's and, and, we, and we look at, you know, all the other athletes that were, that were Jim Brown's, you know, and, the, you know, just everybody else. And we go back to the 40s where you looked at, you know, how, you know, Jackie Robinson and, uh, uh, you know, those guys, you know, uh, the Don Newcombs, you know, uh, started uh, infiltrating white society to find equality for us. And that was what Dr. King used as a model to how he was going to stage what he did. You know, when he went back and talked to them and, and thanked them for showing him the way to be civil and make change. You know, where we're looking at Dr. King as the father of the civil rights movement, but he watched baseball players set the example for how he was going to strategize his movements. You know, we look at the Jack Johnson's and the original boxes from back in the day in the 1900s, you know, and what they had to go with and deal with. We look at the, you know, Jesse Owens, you know, going up against and representing America going against Hitler. You know what I'm saying? So you look at athletes always at the forefront of it. So you look at what's going on now, but if you really look at it, there's always been a societal connection between athlete and society and movements. You know, that I do think society starts it, but the athletes, for the most part, always get to the forefront and become the strongest and premier voices of those movements. What's your perspective on how the game of basketball is kind of covered today? Because when you talk about, like, the way society is moving, I kind of look at, like, basketball as being the one sport where the media or just people in general constantly are kind of, like, chastising the players, like having something negative to say about the players and stuff like that. Of course. And I hate to say it, they're supposed to. You know, name, name me another business inside of America where the workforce is 80% of color and has, and has the power to leverage situations the way the NBA does. Just name me one. So they're supposed to, I, I can't find one. You know, we can look at the entire culture of hip-hop. That's not that. You know, we see all this movement and, and, and engagement and the power is, you know, the, the what we're seeing, you know, the power is shifting with black film and the power of that. They don't have that type of leverage, you know, inside of filmmaking. They don't see that. We don't see that in the arts. You know, we, we don't see that at all. We don't see that in design. We don't see that in, you know, in, in, in television. You know, where we're seeing a lot of more black presence and black power movers from, you know, Shonda Rhimes to, um, you know, whoever. You know, we don't, we, we, we don't see uh, Kenya Burris. You know, we don't see that type of leverage with those type of numbers in those industries. There, there's not a business, I don't think, in America that has a workforce that is over 80% of color where they have this type of power. So, of course, there's supposed to be, you know, some backlash and pushback on that because this is something that America has never seen before. And America doesn't want to see this. You know, they don't, they, they don't want this. They don't know how to react to this. They're not used to seeing, you know, brothers or sisters having this much, you know, leverage and power to do what they want to do. And even though we're not running the league because, you know, the black ownership is still low, you know, there's, you know, Mark is the closest we're going to get to uh, a black commissioner of sports right now. You know, and, you know, if you look at the executive boards, it is, you know, there's 
a small percentage of us in there. Yeah, 2%. So whatever, it's still a small percentage, but it's the labor force that has power. And because there are not too many Fortune 500 or Fortune 1000 companies in America where the workforce is that strong and the population of it is, you know, run, run, runs the gamut of being, like I said, at the 80% percentile of people of color, they don't see that. So, yeah, I, I, I get where the scrutiny is coming from because this is a threat to the power structure of America. You know what I'm saying? They're not, no, y'all, y'all aren't supposed to, y'all aren't supposed to have that much power. Not like that. So it, it's supposed to come. My thing with us is recognizing that it's going to come and continue to navigate with that. You know, and not be surprised or taken aback because, oh, they don't like us. Or, oh, they're going to push back. No, we should expect that because we should know that this is, this is, this is, this itself is the unicorn of America. Seeing, seeing something like this, the entire culture of basketball, especially from an, from an NBA standpoint, you know, where it's like, oh, no, 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 this is not supposed to happen. And if it does happen, it's not supposed to be successful. And if it is successful, then it's got to be successful only to them. We can't support this type of success. So, yeah, I, I totally get it. And I think it's going to be a fight that we're going to be in. And I love the fact that we're not backing down from it. And we're, we're, we're continually to push forward for, with it. Yeah, and, and one word that you used was leverage, right? And I think with the, the world and the space that we're in now, a lot of players are realizing the leverage that they do have, right? In terms of contracts, advertisements, all that. But unfortunately, right, there's, there's an audience, a group of people that feel like players should just do what they're told. Even though they bring a wild amount of value for everyone in this industry, they're still looked at as being like, oh no, you should do this, you should do that. Do you think that, damage has been done in terms of how players are treated in terms, not just by the media, but in terms of them having their own voice. Do you think there's a deeper discussion that needs to happen instead of it being viewed as, okay, a player wants to leave this team or a player wants to go to that team instead of maybe we should start thinking of, okay, this player knows his worth, right? Because to your point, that's something that scares a lot of people, just the, the thought of players actually knowing that they could be doing other things on other teams or whatever the case may be. Right. No, I, I, I think. How can I say this? I think there's always a threat when it comes to. The color of our skin and our eight and our ability to navigate and function at a high level. Um, and there's always going to be pushback from a societal standpoint, especially a white societal standpoint when it comes to that, because they're not used to seeing it. Um, and I know the one thing, you know, when it comes to business, um, for the most part in this country, and I'll generalize and spread this across the board. The one thing American business, especially white owned American business does not want is for us to get smarter, you know, smarter about our value, smarter about our abilities, smarter about our, um, you know, uh, leverage for lack of a better word, smarter about what our true value is. They, they don't want us to understand that and be able to insert that into what it is that we do, quote unquote, for them. So when we're looking at basketball, specifically the NBA, for the players to understand the simple fact that, you know, owners can complain all they want about not making money, but their 
I don't think it's happened once. There hasn't been an owner in the history of the NBA, I don't think, that has gone broke paying players. They may go broke for other reasons, but they have not gone broke from paying players. And I think players understand that. And I think the players also understand that they are the commodity that makes this business run. That fans don't necessarily engage with teams because of who the owner is, because of who the vice president is, because of who the video coordinator is. You know what I'm saying? Because of who runs ticket sales, because who's in charge of advertising, because who is the head of analytics. That's not why fans engage. That's not why, you know, you're able to buy an arena and co-partner with the airlines and fill that arena 41 times a year with 23,000 people. It's not because of those people. It's because of those 12 dudes that collectively get on the court and play a game that entertains other individuals. You know what I'm saying? So when players recognize that, even though they do sign contracts, when players recognize that and understand that I have the ability to exercise my space and instill what I feel my value is on this marketplace, then there should be no backlash to it. Because at the end of the day, even though once again there's contract signed, it's still on the owners to decide how they want to flow with that. Like, let's take Kevin Durant's situation. That's a, that's a great, I think, analogy to use for this question. Kevin Durant said that he'd like to be traded. Now, the way we put it in the media is we didn't say Kevin Durant asked for a trade. We didn't say Kevin Durant said he wanted to be traded. We said Kevin Durant demands <laughs> a trade. Small difference in how that message is going to be received, correctly? Now, Kevin Durant is still under his contract, I think, for four more years, right? Yeah, four years. Now, just because somebody asked for something doesn't mean if you're in the position of the, the you are the, you, you are the one that has the power over that contract. I'm being careful about not using the word only. When you are the one that's in power of controlling that contract, you don't have to do anything, do you? Like, no, I can, you can do what the Bulls did with Michael Jordan. <laughs> like, no, you signed a contract. You can do whatever and say you want to, but you signed a contract, so that's what we're going to abide by. That's fine. We did the same thing with Scotty Pippen. We're like, hey, no, this is the deal you signed. Yeah, you want more money. Yeah, we know you deserve more money, but we don't have to do anything. Now, the player could be unhappy, the player could do that and the other, whatever the player does, that's fine. But you are still in somewhat control of how the situation plays itself out. So, why are we mad at the athlete if ownership does something that they ask? They're the ones that are still in position to make that decision. You know, and it's funny 
when especially when it comes to black individuals and contracts and deal signed and holding up your end of the agreement. Because in business, it happens all the time. Like, not in regular workforce thing. I'm not talking about people that, you know, work hourly jobs. I'm talking about, like, people that work for businesses at the highest level where they sign contracts, where they get salaries that are based on years. You know, people break those contracts all the time, every day. But most of those individuals, for the most part, are not black. They don't come from the backgrounds that the NBA basketball players do. And there's not this underlying sentiment of you Negroes should be happy because we rescued you from where you came from and gave you the ability to do this thing. We gave you the ability to make us millions of dollars, so you should be happy with those millions of dollars. No, but when you come from the Harvards, the Yales, the Stanfords, the Warford, you know, all, all these schools, and you're in business and you sign these contracts and you're not happy with your situation, and you're like, you know what, IBM, I'm tired of being here as executive vice president. I want out of my contract because I want to go over to Google now. We don't make a big no deal problem. out of that. Yeah, it's only a problem. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, yeah. it's not frowned upon because then it's just business. Yeah. You know, but when we have the power to do that in a certain field, and the only field, one of the only fields we have in this country to do that, because of all those things I mentioned that come into play beyond just skin color, you know, beyond just, you know, economic background that come up, Outside of positioning and all this and the other, no, nah, that's that's not cool. We don't we don't do that here, you know. But it's the same thing that goes on. So, you know, um, my thing is that it's on us to understand that that narrative is always going to be painted in a way that finds us in a negative light, because while practices while this type of practice of wanting a change inside of a deal that you made is Common practice across the board in American business is just not normal when it comes to us trying to enforce those changes. Yeah, and, and, and I think too, when we talk about the overall structure of all this, right, I think we got to acknowledge that there's a difference between being an athlete versus being an individual. And I think sometimes people have trouble identifying yes. those two things, right? As, as an athlete, you know, you may have mixed opinions about how, you know, a player, you know, performed in a certain game and all that, cool, whatever, right? That, that, that is what they signed up for. But I think as an individual, we all want, you know, the pursuit of happiness, right? We all want what's best for ourselves right. and our family, right? And like, to your point too, we don't, we don't say this to anybody else, but the minute someone who is very talented in the game of basketball, you know, decides to make a certain decision, all of a sudden, we forget about morals. We forget about the fact that it's not a crime to want what's best for, for again, you and your family. Yeah, or, you just want, or, you, or you may just want something different. Yeah. And once again, they don't, I hate to say it, they don't have to bend to your demands. They don't have to. You know, but here's the thing, and this is where the catch 44 is in this, you know, is that if you don't, if you're an owner and you don't want to honor somebody's request for movement, you don't have to, but you're still dealing with the labor force that is looking at every move you make and they have the decision on their end when their quote unquote deals are up to not want to deal with you because of the way you dealt with other people. You know, and I keep going back to the way Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan would deal with the Bulls. 
There were years. And still to this day, the players didn't want to message them because they're like, if you treated Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen bad, how are you going to treat me? Now, yeah, as, as an organization, you're like, no, we're the ones that's in the position of power as ownership. And you're the one that, hey, you sign this deal, we're going to stick to that. Right? That's it. We don't, we, don't, we don't fluctuate on that. We do not renegotiate deals in the middle of contracts. And you have the ability as the quote-unquote power, the one is position the power of that contract to stand on that. But keep in mind that there are 400 other individuals watching the way you handle that, watching how you deal with your quote-unquote employees, watching how you deal with that labor force that is the one or two or three that are generating your overall millions for you. And if you treat them bad, now this is how we exercise our power. No, when my contract is up, when my deal is up, here's where I don't want to go. And they have to be very careful about that. <laughs> they have to be very, very careful about that because yeah. that's the quickest way for you to lose money and, and lose power so. in whatever game you claim, you claim yourself an owner in. Which is, and that's another reason why I believe that why all trades are given at the end of the day because yeah. they don't want that to happen. Exactly, but that's that's where the that's where the leverage is, and that's what people don't. I don't think that's one of the things they have make. That's the hardest thing that people have to deal with when it comes to accepting how players exercise their own sense of power in this. I think it would be different if they're like, "Oh, as players, why don't you just live out whatever." deal it is that you made and then do what you have to do once that comes up they for the most part wouldn't have a problem with that but unfortunately you're dealing with a space where your time is limited for you to function and generate not just your family income but income for that organization you know it kind of goes both ways like it's like yeah you got 10 to 12 years inside this game to build you know, your gener- build generational wealth for your family. But you also have that same amount of time to do what you have to do for this organization and the organization realizes that too. So they want to milk you for as much as they can as well. Because it's not just your family's wealth that they income that they're dealing with. You know, if you're, if you're Dirk whiskey in Dallas, Mark Cuban's like, nah, man, I'm trying to get everything I can out of you right now while I can because once you're gone, there's no guarantee I'm going to get a Luca to repeat this again. So I'm trying to get out of you what I can. But that's where, for the most part, is on the owner's side to make the situation great so that you get a player like Dirk who never wants to leave. That's how that power structure works. And you get players like, hey, man, you know what? You see the way Dallas treated Dirk? I'll mess with Dallas. You know what I'm saying? In a situation like a KD where he asks for a trade and then ask for teams he would like to be traded to. If you can find a way to make that happen, Dallas becomes one of those teams that he looks at and is like, hey, you know what? They treat their players nice. Miami, they treat their players right. You know what I'm saying? That's where it kind of benefits and, and, and gives, gives some type of balance to the playing field. And before we get off the subject, let's be honest. Let's be really honest. If the owners did over the course of the history of this. Let's go back to when this whole free agency, trades, player movement started. You know, if Oscar Robinson did not have to fight in court for players 
to have the ability to move within the league and not be treated like cattle and slaves and all this. And if the owners had acted right from the very beginning on how they treated their labor and how they treated players, we never would have had this. You get what I'm saying? If they had done right and been straight up fair and treated those human beings like human beings, you never would have seen the players have to push back and try to ascertain the power that they're trying to get the way they are now. It's the same thing I say with us in the media, where they talk about all these athletes now using and having their own platforms and not having to deal with us in the media. That's on us. If we had been fair with them from a media standpoint, the athletes, they never would have run out and looked for their own voice. They would have trusted us because we treated them fairly. It's the exact same thing. Yeah. And one of the, the final questions that I, that I have for you is what do you think can be done for us to improve the balance? Right. What, what, what do you think can be done for there to be a true adjustment? So to your credit and to your point, there actually is somewhat of a level playing field between the players and the media. Right. The players as well as general managers. That way it's not just like a, a back and forth battle between all parties. What do you think can be done to really make all parties in this situation satisfied? The change in mentality of white male ownership. That's it. You know, um, yeah, that's really it. it, it you know, uh, once, it, and it's hard for people to think that way in a country that's built itself on the power of exercising ownership you know, and exactly what that word means and what owning something actually means and how you're supposed to function as an owner. And when you're dealing with the industry that is probably 90% uh, when it comes to ownership and, and that, you know, that 90% is white and that ownership, that 90% is male, you know, and white males in this country historically have conditioned themselves to believe that, you know, the, the functionality of an owner is this way. I own, you don't. I say you do. That's kind of the way it flows. As long as that mentality exists, then everything's going to be the exact same. You know, I think there are unique situations in this country when it comes to business and ownership where the labor force is, should be treated more like a partner. You know, um, as equal is, is not actual shareholders, but equally shareholders, that there's equity there, that if we work together, we are stronger. If, you know, I, I kind of drop the owner labor mentality, we can function and flow better. And I think the NBA happens to be one of those, you know, unique companies where the labor force really is the entire functionality of that business model. It really is. And um, until ownership across the board changes the mentality of what being an owner is in this particular space, then, then nothing's going to change. Nothing. Nothing at all. And I, I, unfortunately, I don't want to be a pessimist about this, but I really, don't, I really don't see that changing because then the NBA would really have to be unique in contrast to every other business that functions in America. And I don't see NBA business owners 
across the board being that much different. You know what I'm saying? Like every other business has that same mentality. Why should our mentality be different? I don't, I really don't see that happening. You know, uh, of course, unless that particular dynamic changes. So let, let me flush this out a little further. If the dynamic changes from strictly being 90 to 95% white male and it shifts to more female ownership and it shifts to more minority ownership and it shifts to more black, you know, or former player ownership. If, it, if that dynamic shifts across the next generation or two, then we'll probably see a change. You know, but right now in this moment, since I don't see that necessarily happening, where in the next 10 years, you see ownership, white male ownership in the NBA going from 90 percent to 70, 65, then it's going to take the mentality of the current you know, population of owners to change the way they look at what it is to be an owner in this league. Um, yeah. And that's the only thing that's going to make that change happen. Yeah, it's crazy because you're talking about ownership and own, being owning a team and stuff like that. But like, we can't even get into the front office. Like, two percent of African American yeah. males are in the front office right now in the NBA. Yeah. So, yeah. ownership is a <laughs> let's get in the front office first, and then hopefully, ownership happens. But yeah, but we gotta saying. keep in mind they still look at us as labor. Yeah. Like they still put a ceiling on what they visualize us being able to do. Like in the, and the way this in the way this country functions, even as great as the NBA is, the way this country functions is that until they see us doing things outside of playing basketball on a regular basis, their mentality is not going to change. And it takes more than just one of us to be in that space in order for that change and that mentality change to fall into play. You know, it really does. So it takes more than Michael Jordan to be the sole minority black owner in the game, you know, because he's Michael Jordan, you know, and you can't hold every other black individual up to that standard because there's only one of him. So, law, you know, if us three want to get together and, and put an ownership team together to buy, you know, the Sacramento Kings, you know, you know, only the only model they have to look at that looks like us that they've ever seen in this space from a majority standpoint of ownership is Michael Jordan. And three of us, times three of us together ain't a Michael Jordan. There's nothing we can do to make them even look at us. You have to be like the greatest player, the most important player in this sport to be looked at as a possible yeah. owner. It's <laughs> tough. Of his it's tough. And that's, that's tough to do, but his <laughs> thing. If over the course of whatever, you start to see more Grand Hills come up and become owners from a percentage standpoint, and that becomes more regular. More Magic Johnsons. You know what I'm saying? Um, you know, just, just, just across the board, when that changes, when you see, uh, you know, if, if whoever succeeds Adam Silver is a, a black woman, you know, who becomes commissioner in the NBA, you know, or a black male that becomes commissioner in the NBA, or somebody of Asian descent that becomes the commissioner in the NBA. When you see that structure, when you start seeing executive vice presidents, like you said, about the, the, the chain that goes from 2% to 20% in the executive suites of the NBA, when you start to see that and that becomes the norm to help normalize us, then 
that mentality starts to shift because they start looking at us as more than just the labor force that happens to be generating the income to keep this league afloat. Do you know what I'm saying? And that's not on them choosing us. That I'm, I'm not going to give them that much power. They will. We still have to do this. And we, you know, I'm not putting that, you know, white guilt on them for they have to feel guilty to the point that we have to hire these people because we have to, to make it look good because everybody's fighting for equality. No, that's actually just them taking their blinds off and looking at us as more than three-fifths of human beings. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Looking at us as having the same capabilities as other white males do when it comes to running this business, to keeping this business afloat. You know, and once that happens and it becomes normal, where it's not just one of us in this space, one of us in this space, one of us in this space, you know, as John Thompson used to say, he says it's a damn shame that every black coach has to be a John Thompson to be looked at in order to get a job. Like, you have to be black, you have to be this, and you have to win a championship. But, because they don't apply those same principles to white guys when it comes to coaching. But when you're black and you're the only one to do it, yeah, you're the standard now. Like, everybody has to live up to that standard that looks like you now. And until that mentality changes, then nothing's going to change. But it takes, it takes more of us to happen to make that change. You know, Dawn Staley is, you know, kind to trying to be the one to shape how women basketball coaches are looked at now, especially at the college level, correct? Because she is the highest paid. She is, the, she is right now in the Gino Oriana or in my conversations now. She's looked at as being on that stage. But it's going to take more than Dawn, you know what I'm saying, to be that way. You know, it's going to take, you know, three, four, five to make them look at Black women coaches as capable of being able to build franchises and, you know, school programs around and be successful. It has to be more than one now in order to normalize. That's basically what I'm saying. It's nice yeah. to have one, but we're at the stage of this game where it just can't be one. Power comes in numbers. And we have yeah. to find our way into these positions for these numbers to act as normalizers when it comes to us and how they view us. Yeah. And even to your point, too, about Mike, you know, obviously we know his playing career. So it's like, okay, that's Mike. So he, you know, is in there. Same case with Coach Dawn. It's like, well, we know her what her playing career was like. And obviously that's a, a huge part of, you know, where she's at now and exactly. everything like that. So um, even still, right, not everyone is going to be like those two, but just getting our foot in the door, let alone getting certain positions. But I think a lot of us is trying to get, you know, your foot in the door and either start or continue to build up that platform where it's normalized yes. and comfortable enough for say, okay, we see a good amount. Um, but yeah, I, I, of course, you know, appreciate you again, man, for, for pulling up um, on the show. It was, this was a, a definitely um, a healthy conversation and a well-needed one. Um, Ahmad and I, obviously, we always go get into back and forth about, you know, um, what's kind of happening around the league. But at the same time, it's important for all of us, you know, to kind of reflect on where the world is in terms of the landscape and and, and overall statistics and things like that. So um, it was definitely a, a much-needed yeah, well, conversation. I, I, mean, I think it's important because for us in this country, the NBA, I don't want to say just basketball culture, but the NBA is a reflection of us in the world. You know what I'm saying? Because that's that's one of the few places where we publicly are able to flourish. And that becomes 
part of the normalization of black individuals in this country because you get to see us perform at this level and us performing at this level garnishes respect for not just what we do, but who we are as a people. And that's all part of the normalization. So the NBA is a reflection of our America, of us in America. So it's, so we have these basketball conversations, but to your point, it's also about our America, you know, and how we, and, and, and this part of being, us overall being normalized in America. Yeah, so it's just important for us to make sure we keep that part of the conversation at the forefront as well. Yeah, that's definitely real. Also, I want to say thank you, Scoop, because, you know, me and Theus, we wouldn't be here without you. And oh, you started no, this like t- 25 years ago, you know, creating, helping create Slam and stuff like that. So it's been an honor, my man. And that's an honor. I'll tell you what, y'all will be all right. Y'all would have been all right. If I didn't, it's not serious. Y'all, 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 y'all would be all right. I, look, I appreciate the love, um, especially coming for you all. I love what you all are doing. And I love that the responsibility you all are taking to make sure that uh, this, um, this, 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 this franchise that we started with, this magazine, still has legs for, you know, 25 more years to come. I appreciate that. But, you know, seeing what you all are able to do, understand if I didn't exist, if I didn't happen, you all were still going to be all right. You know what I'm saying? I think it helps maybe, but you all are going to be all right. You all are going to be all right because you didn't get to where you are right now and be able to sustain it without having something inside of you to make that happen. You know, I may have been a spark, to a certain degree, yeah. but it's on it's, it's it's on you all for your ability to sustain it and keep it moving. And you know, I just am of the belief that if I didn't exist, you all were gonna be okay. You're gonna find it, and if you didn't find it, you all were gonna create it. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? For sure, yeah. for sure, for yeah. sure. Well, of course, you know we we had to 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 give you your flowers, of course, like that. Because look, to your point, at this entire conversation, even with athletes at the highest of levels, that doesn't happen, right? So I think it's so important. Yeah. Um, for us and you know in this space to give people um, their flowers when it's deserved but again thank you again man for for being on the show um, no for those of y'all listening um, make sure you subscribe to No Pump Face wherever you get your podcast YouTube Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify and just like that y'all gone peace <laughs>